0: Welcome back to another episode of Profitable Property Management. Today I'm talking to Kelly Segretto about all things ops. We went deep in that this episode. What I enjoyed is I just felt super comfortable pressing Kelly on all of the details, and she had answers, opinions. Uh, it was great. We went in and covered a lot of ground in a short period of time. I think you're gonna get something out of this episode. Check it out. Wow. Welcome to another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Muela, and today I'm talking to Kelly Segreto Kelly, thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Excited to hear a little bit about your background. Let's start here. Where were you born?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, I was born in San Jose, California.
0: Okay, and how long how long did you stay there for? Did you stick around?
1: A gazillion years. I was in California in the Bay Area until 2016. I, Took a little stint in Arizona, but um, mostly the Bay Area.
0: Okay. What was your first introduction to residential property management?
1: That actually came on the general contractor side. So my ex and I ran a general contracting business and our predominant client was a property management company that would take on slumlord properties and then get them back up to a standard that they could rent them. And so got my first taste of it there and then transitioned into... That was in Arizona and then moved back to California to do multifamily.
0: Okay, great. That's a great vantage point. Let's go with that. What was your impression of property managers as a vendor?
1: Um, thankfully, the the property manager that I was working with was very organized and was very good at what he did. It isn't always the case, but my impression was that they were hardworking, that they had a, a great perspective of the value of property and an understanding that you do have to find a basic quality back in the property before you can find tenants. And so it was actually a really positive experience for me working with that particular property manager.
0: And in terms of the dynamics of like what made for a good working relationship, you know, what what came up as like the things that were just the obvious drivers of a good vendor PM relationship?
1: Communication. Understanding what they ne- they. Understanding what they needed so that we could meet that need. Uh, I think a lot of times if you don't have proper expectations set and you're not speaking the same language, a lot of times things go haywire before you have an opportunity to really create a good experience. So for us on the vendor side, it was really helpful to have a very clear picture of what they wanted the product to be so that we could then meet that expectation.
0: And you said it was construction, is that right? Or general contracting? General
1: contracting. So we, we handled everything from the estimate to the completed project and did all of the, the work. So learned how to do all drywall and plumbing and electrical and refinish floors. Sometimes the first thing we had to do for these slumlord run properties was secure the property. So put new windows, put functioning doors back in, replace all of the locks. Um, it was a good education period in my career.
0: So reno, rehab, but like short of full-blown construction?
1: Correct. Yeah.
0: Got it. Okay. So you mentioned you transition, and then from there, the next jump for you was?
1: Property management. So I moved up to um, back up to the Bay Area in California. And young family, I had a 18-month-old and was pregnant with number two. And we needed a place to live, and we needed an income. And it was actually my ex-sister-in-law that mentioned apartment managing as a potential way to get into a place to live and have a salary pretty quickly. And so we started looking at those opportunities, having come from working with property managers, having the background of construction and that kind of piece, we were able to find a position that um, was considered what they called a pod position in multifamily, where I covered the management side and my ex covered the maintenance side of property management in uh, multifamily communities.
0: What was the size of the multifamily communities?
1: So these were small to mid-level properties. The property that we lived on site with was only 34 doors. Um, over the next couple of years, I ended up adding additional properties to my portfolio. At The largest, I think I was running 225, but they were all small properties that were spread out in the neighborhood. Um In California, there's a specific rule that if you have 16 doors or more, you have to have someone living Mm, on site. mm. So that's very unique to California in the way that you have to run property management.
0: What's the fundamental difference between multi and single family in your perspective?
1: Oh, man. Fundamental difference. Um, There's a lot of differences. I would say in a lot of ways, the multifamily industry has already found a way to be able to create great experiences for their owners and for their residents. They're looking at this from a commercial standpoint. So when they're working with their owners, they're already investor focused a lot of the time. Whereas in the single family, you get a lot more DIY, you get a lot more accidental landlords, you get a lot more of the more immature property owners or not necessarily immature, but um, non-strategic property owners Um, in multifamily while you get some of that in the small small multifamily, once you start getting into 60 80 properties um a lot of times you're, you're shifting over to somebody that is more investor focused and on the resident side because you have everyone living in the same area you're able to have community events and competitions and create a very different experience to scale so you can do a lot more for your residents for a lower cost and I think that the multifamily industry has really, especially the larger players in the multifamily industry, has have really been able to create a wonderful experience for their residents and add a lot of value. Um, single family is getting there, but because they're scattered site, it's so much harder to achieve. So I think that there's you know there's pros and cons to both sides. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more of the multifamily traits infused into single family over time, as we mature as an industry. I feel like the the multifamily has been a business longer than single family management mm-hmm. has been. So we've got some catching up to do.
0: What's the some of the bleeding edge? What are some of the opportunities you see of ideas to port from multi to single?
1: Continued resident experience. I think we're just on the edge of what you can do to create a really stellar customer experience and owner experience, being more savvy on the investor side. Understanding how to analyze a deal, how to present new opportunities to your owner, deeper reporting and understanding of reporting and education for our owners.
0: So you've described it as maturity, which makes sense to me. But I also mm-hmm. think about incentives. Mm-hmm. What would be different about the incentives in single family versus multifamily that it would not be more obvious for there to be just as much interest in optimizing for resident experience, for example?
1: not sure how to answer that.
0: Me either. That's why I asked.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Um,
0: you know, the free market does its thing. Like, why is it just not obvious? Why is it, why is it not more obvious that residential, residential experience would be a thing to really juice and optimize?
1: Because people don't have to, in order to be profitable. I think that we have a lot of property managers that are making more money than they thought they would. And so they see adding more experiences As adding more effort and more cost. And I don't think that they, not to generalize because there are plenty of property managers that are great at providing an amazing experience for their residents. But I think there isn't the draw because there isn't the necessity. The competition hasn't risen up to a point to where if you're not doing it, you can't compete, if that makes sense.
0: So, okay. So then in terms of the sell here, for a apartment community... Resident experience maps to what delight, word of mouth. It's it's kind of a tenant focused, vacancy focused consideration. Whereas for single family, it's all scattered site. They're not talking to each other, and the perception then is that even if uh, that, that it it might not be feasible for my company to accrete enough benefit around resident experience for it to actually impact something like vacancy.
1: Yeah, I think that there's just not the proof in the pudding for some people. I think that they see the cost and the effort. They don't see the long-term of the value and the increase in revenue and the increase of retention rates and everything else that you create when you create a better experience. I don't think they're thinking that far in advance. And I think culturally, a lot of people aren't planning in advance anymore um, like we used to. And so I think it's, it's kind of nearsightedness within players in the industry.
0: One of the things that I really like to do some more research around is understanding what actually impacts or could create bias on behalf of of a consumer, i.e. resident, in order for them to weight the the reputation of the property manager when selecting a community. It's a really fun idea. People Mm -hmm. would like my brand so much that there would be just bias towards staying here, coming here. It breaks down in a couple of different places, one of which is reputation. How would I as a consumer even measure or get access other than my buddy says like, hey, when I moved in, toilet paper was already on the roll, et cetera. How do you, is there any mechanism that you can think of in order for a tenant to assess quality in a way that would even incentivize the effort that the PM may be putting in?
1: I think that's really hard. I think it's really hard to capture any kind of data off of somebody's perception of your efforts because there isn't a, I mean, you can do surveys and you can try to capture information through surveys, and a lot of people do, but you're not gonna capture those things like there was toilet paper on the roll or it's almost like those niceties, just like when you go to Disneyland and you have a Disney experience, you're not thinking about the fact that the, the roads are clean. And you're not thinking about the fact that the bathrooms are cleaned on a a more regular schedule. And you're not thinking about those different things because that's part of what makes the, the magical experience is that things just are. And so when a resident moves into a home, they may not be able to put their finger on why it's great or why it was amazing in the same way that if you were to, you know, open up a, an Apple product and you see how everything is packaged perfectly, Mm -hmm. there's a very tangible, quick recognition to why that's amazing. Mm -hmm. It's amazing because every piece is perfectly measured and perfectly contained around the item that you purchased. And there's so much thought into the details, but it's in such a small package that you can quantify each little piece. Whereas in a home, you're not going to notice all of the details and the attention to detail or the the five times that you called back the cleaner to make sure that everything was perfect before mm-hmm. they moved in or the evaluations that went into it to make sure that the, the maintenance items were captured and that the dishwasher was run and the sinks were run for uh, two minutes so that you could make sure there was no backups. Those details that make a great experience aren't something that people are necessarily going to see to be able to report on.
0: It's a noisy thing to measure. You have multiple things that are influencing. You have what you're highlighting, experience-focused kind of moments. You have the ongoing service, like speed to repair, for example, hugely impactful. Um, And then you have the property itself. Service was actually pretty good. PM was pretty good. Property sucked. That was just crappy property. All the efforts, you know, and the, the opposite could obviously be true as well. When you think on the service side of things, how would you kind of stack rank the factors that you see adding and rolling up to the same thing of of overall satisfaction, happiness, et cetera?
1: I mean, what categories would there be?
0: Yeah, if 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 you're just a guess and pontificate, if we had a um, group of researchers to research anything that we wanted, what would you guess are the operational activities the functions of the business that are most impactful on tenant satisfaction, tenant experience?
1: I'm going to say the move-in process, the just the smoothness of that process itself. It's everything from your lease signing process to receiving your keys to your move-in evaluation and your first impressions when you enter that home. That move-in process is is definitely one of those pieces. I would say that your ongoing maintenance is a huge Piece in that equation, that's make or break for many residents. If you have issues that are affecting their quality of life and you're not addressing them in a timely fashion, uh, that's, you're going to lose them every time. Um, Communication is huge. Did you answer the phone? When I email, do I get a response within 24 or 48 hours? Are you meeting the communication expectations that were set at the beginning of the relationship? Um, So I'd say communication is definitely a a component that would be measured um, and even problem resolution when you have you know, if you're in a multifamily situation if you have noisy neighbors or you have a, I want to think of a different example but dogs that are leaving waste on the the lawn out front or burning holes in the lawn um, those types of things are going to happen. It's inevitable that there's going to be issues when someone lives in a home that are outside your control, but how do you problem solve them? How do you resolve them? How do you communicate that resolution? You know, I have an example when I was in Menlo Park, California doing multifamily, we had a big storm and a, a very, very old, like 180 year old oak tree fell and it fell on a building and it left people with no power and no water um, for a while and people decided to still live in that facility. It wasn't red tagged, so they could. But our overabundance of communication and setting expectations that were not only met but exceeded changed the way that people felt about that experience. Mm. And so it shaped you know, residents that went on to stay longer than they maybe would have mm-hmm. had that experience been poor. Mm. So I think the problem resolution is a big part of that as well.
0: I'd like to like to talk a little bit about policy. Policy is above process, mm-hmm. meaning great processes can't fix bad policies. Good policies can make your processes fundamentally easier. Mm-hmm. When you think about what great policies look like as juxtaposed against those which are tend to drive some dysfunction, what comes to mind for you? And let's start with with owner facing. What are some policy frameworks that you think people should be mindful of?
1: Um. Oh, geez. Policy-wise, I would say having clear documented policy would be the first place that I would start. I think many property management companies that I come into have no policies and procedures manuals. They have no groundwork to which their foundation was laid. And so just to start as a baseline for any policy, having documented written policies for your company is a very important piece. Breaking that down into categories owners, residents, maintenance, all of these different pieces of the business is then important so that it's able to be navigated, it's able to be referenced, it's able to be followed through with. With owners, I like to he- keep a really high standard for communication always and have expectations that uh, we're going to respond to our owners within six hours or within the next business day. Those pieces are very important. And so having an emphasis to where it's actually backed in your policy is really important. I would say um, another policy that I like to hold is proactive milestones with our owner. So we have a proactive um, approach to how we want to make sure they understand the financials of their business. So our policy for that would be that we make sure that all of our staff is educated and trained in how to speak to the IRR or the cap rate of a property or how to help an an owner investor understand the maintenance breakdown of what that cost was and the reason for that cost. But it's a policy of training and education at a higher level for our staff that's going to be speaking with an owner Um, along the same lines policy that we have one point of contact for our owner clients because I don't want my owner to have to go through a Rolodex of who they should be talking to and try to find the right person. So having that policy in place to where if a communication comes in, it's known that there is a a set person that handles those communications.
0: How does that impact the the departmental versus portfolio?
1: It's still a set person. Whether your portfolio is broken up to where you have different properties that are under a different portfolio, it goes to whoever that portfolio manager, your property manager is. If it's departmental, you're normally going to have an owner relations or a combined relations manager uh, or general manager that would still be a point person. But I like to have really clear guidelines of who is the owner of each responsibility in a business, because if you have no ownership, you have no accountability. And if you have no accountability, you have chaos. Mm-hmm. And so having clear understanding of roles, responsibilities, and ownership of each task is important.
0: What about policies that relate to alignment between the owner and the PM? Sometimes incentives get misaligned and you get wonky behavior. Maintenance is something that comes to mind, right? When you find out that you're dealing with a client that really doesn't want to fix stuff and they really don't actually have the money, what policies are wise to put in place there to drive alignment?
1: Actually, I had a client that I was just talking to about this this week. one of the policies i really like to have is a property standard and that property standard is as a team we have decided that this is the standard of the property that we will put to market this is the caliber of the materials that need to be used when we do replacements this is the function of the different appliances that we have in the home this is the you know the property standard that the staff all agrees with, they all get an input when we're creating it to be able to say, hey, these are the things that we come across in our roles so that we can build a property standard everyone can be comfortable with and everyone could live by. And I say that because that then is presented during the property management agreement phase to where you're presenting to the owner, this is our property standard, whether we do the maintenance, whether you do the maintenance, regardless of who does it, a property needs to meet this standard before we're willing to put it to market mm. for you. Mm. If that takes longer because you want to do it, that's fine. But we're going to do a property evaluation at the end to make sure that the property meets standard because we're putting our brand and our name on that property when we put it to market. And so we have a caliber and a standard that we want to hold to in how we're perceived. Because if somebody wants to rent from you know XYZ property management, they should know what to expect from one of our properties, regardless of who our owners are. And I think if you set that expectation from the very beginning with your owner clients, it removes a lot of hurdles because then it's a recall, not an introduction of a new idea at the time of turnover or at the time of onboarding a new property.
0: How does that thinking map to vendors? My cousin Ralph said he can do it cheaper.
1: So We're always going to have those owners that come at us and say, you know, I have all my own vendors or my brother is a contractor or any number of those things that we've heard from our, our owner clients. And the reality is I normally try to hedge off that feeling of, I want to do my own maintenance. I think that is a very slippery slope when you start going down that road of letting owners handle their own maintenance. So that communication in the beginning is, okay, cool. You want to do the maintenance. You can take all of the maintenance. So if we're carving out maintenance from us, that means that emergency maintenance, phone calls, work orders, everything is coming to you. What's the contact number you'd like us to provide the residents so that they can handle that for you? Right?
0: I don't imagine there's a lot of uptake on that. I would.
1: <laughs> there's not. Um, but I don't want to ever be in the business of having my staff not able to handle a request or field a request because... They've now got to talk to the owner. The owner's going to send their brother. Their brother doesn't respond. It's now been two weeks. Now it's been three weeks. Maybe there's a habitability concern. It puts you in a potentially liable situation because you're not, you're not upholding your legal responsibility to your residents and to code in some of these situations because you're waiting on, you know, upholding your other legal responsibilities to your owner who you've now made an agreement that they get to handle maintenance. So... Having that conversation, a lot of times they'll say, no, 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 no I don't, I don't wanna do that. And then you can talk through your value proposition of why you handle the maintenance and why you take all of the calls and educate them on what that actually means. If they have vendors that they wanna use and those vendors meet your standard, I've got no problem onboarding those vendors and earmarking your property management account to say, hey, when a plumbing issue comes in, this is the plumber that we use for this property. This is who we're going to call, but we're still coordinating it. We're still making sure that the job is done at the end of the day. If the owner really wants to take on all of that maintenance and they still say yes, and um, most of the time I advise my clients to to say no thank you and and not take on those clients, but if they choose that they want to, then a contract needs to be put into place so that you can cover your liability and you can protect yourself so that you're contractually agreeing that they're going to handle the maintenance, they are going to coordinate the work, and if work is not completed within X amount of days, then we have permission to come in, hire someone at your cost. So that you have a buffer and you have a backup in those situations that inevitably come up, where an owner gets busy and they don't follow through, or they're waiting on getting bids back and it just it takes too long, and a resident is sitting there with no hot water, or... Um, no functioning toilet or any of these other situations where there is a sense of urgency and, and those items need to be completed in a correct and timely manner.
0: Well, Kelly, that all sounds well and good. But what about that big client, that guy or guy with 50 doors? Yeah. How do you encourage people to think about handling exceptions related to larger clients that have some certain preferences, etc. where there's a lot more temptation? It's easier to say no to that difficult client. You just know they're just difficult. But this person, they got some weight. They got some heft. You know, you wonder what happens if it's a standoff and we lose.
1: Yeah, uh, those are the most painful ones. And it's. It's really easy to say, oh well, I just wouldn't take them on as a client because they won't they won't go by what I'm comfortable offering. Um, that's not reality. That's not the reality. You're going to take on that client because you. A lot of times, when people are put in that position, they can't afford not to take on that client, and so they'll make exceptions. And that's where having that contract in place is important, so that you have. The ability to have that flex to where you're meeting their desires, you're allowing them to do the the maintenance on their property, or you're allowing them to have their own handyman or handy person that they want to send out, but you still have a fail safe. You have to have a fail safe for those instances where time's just going on too far, and you have to step in and be able to have some kind of leverage and power to be able to make sure that those residents are taken care of.
0: What about overall owner involvement this is definitely a, a big kind of loaded conversation and particularly in the forums that have a equal dispersion of professional and non-professional property managers things can get kind of spicy when you see the scenarios that people manage to walk themselves into what's the what's the bright line for you what are there any sort of situations where owners should have input and, and involvement how do you 80 20 that?
1: I think it's really important to note that in some states, you have to allow your owners to have a lot more control than property managers are oftentimes comfortable with. And so that really varies by state law as well. And so if you're in one of those states where your owner has to be named on all your contracts and they have to be very involved and information has to be shared between owner and resident, then it is much more difficult to be the middleman and say, you know, I have an owner client and I have a resident customer. Um, Those lines are definitely blurred in those situations. I have seen a lot of property management agreements and oftentimes for states where that isn't the case, they try to create penalties and they try to create a buffer to where the, the owner will not contact or Mm -hmm, have mm -hmm. any kind of
0: Um, if you contact the tenant you're paying a $300 fee, Mm
1: -hmm. $300, $500, we're dropping you as a client. It gets very dramatic very quickly. Um, but a lot of times it's just not enforced. We don't see that enforced very often. Uh, I think that there is a lot of value in keeping those relationships separate. And I think I always, I don't think I always, I always go back to making sure that, I'm educating my owners as to the why, because a lot of times they don't understand that I'm trying to protect them and I'm trying to protect their privacy and their time. All of the reasons that they hired me are what I'm trying to uphold. And if they start having direct communications or they start trying to get too involved, a lot of times it's like, well, why do you have a property manager? Mm -hmm. Do you want someone to manage this for you or do you want to manage this yourself? helping them to see the value, helping them um, to really understand your purpose in the equation of of the relationship. I think a lot of it comes down to education. I think a lot of it comes down to personality. You're going to have those owners that just, that's their personality type. They cannot let go. They, They need to have their hands in the pot. They need to know everything. But that's where that communication piece and meeting that need through communication starts to be really valuable. So over-communicating, telling them what you're doing for them, Um, making sure that they have an understanding of your process, that they know that you're coordinating and you're making calls and you're being proactive and you're meeting the needs of the residents. Giving them peace of mind and building that trust is how you help some of those more hands-on clients feel more comfortable over time letting go. And so I have worked with owner clients before where it's like, okay, we will start with it your way, but I would like to plan to taper that back over the next six months. And so we'll make a strategy and we'll make an agreement together to where we're like, okay, this month for this turnover, we'll do it your way. But these are the reasons why I think this is going to be beneficial for you to taper it down. And then for the next one, you're tapering it back a little bit so that you're, you're building that trust over time so that you can get their buy-in. Uh, nobody's just going to rip off the Band-Aid and and stop worrying about the property. But if you have communication, you have expectations, and you have a plan in place, it it sometimes eases those communications.
0: You mentioned the example of a fee that isn't billed, and it was a somewhat squirrely example of an owner contacting a tenant. That's going to happen a lot less than the vast majority of of fees that are part of the the fee surface area. Mm -hmm. What feedback do you have about this general problem of fees not being enforced? Legitimate, good fees that are foundational to the business and they're on the books, and we had the potentially confrontational conversation with the owner. That's what we should be billing, but we ain't quite billing at all. More common than folks would think, not frequently audited in great granular detail. What have you seen there? What have you experienced? Process,
1: process, process. The only way that you consistently capture those fees is if you have a standardized, digitized process that everybody follows in your organization. It gives you the visibility into the day-to-day, but it also allows you to build those steps in. So when you have a lease renewal, the lease renewal fees are going out. When you have a new move in, you're making sure and you have checks and balances to be able to check against to make sure that the pet fees were added and you know, the resident benefit package that was opted into was calculated for and added into their ledger. Without that process, you will always have things slip through the cracks. That's just the reality. (laughs) I'm a huge proponent for process. It's a, a large part of what I do with a lot of my clients is build out their detailed digitized props processes. And I'm, I have to be honest in that when I first started doing that, which was back in 2015, I worked for real property management and was a, an operations manager for them. Uh, they put me to the task of finding a task management solution, creating it, and then launching it to their franchisees and getting their buy-in, doing the full implementation, managing that program. I built all of those SOPs and then created this process and this project for for the company. Um, Initially, I was not on board because I had worked in property management for years and was like, nobody wants to do this. Nobody wants this extra step of going into this other technology, add another thing to the tech stack and have to mark these things off. Well, that was 2015. The way that those processes were built, we were using a program that it wasn't intended to be used as a templated process program. It was more of a task manager. And so the technology has come a long way since then. You have tools like Lead Simple that you now can build out your processes in a very uh, clean and easy way. It's broken out into sections and allows automations and integrations and all these other tools that we didn't have in 2015. So my perception of that in 2015 was no property manager is gonna do this. Mm -hmm. No staff member is gonna do this. They're going to hate it. But now it's kind of crazy because it's a huge part of what I do is I help people identify their standard operation procedures, help them digitize them, help Mm, them launch mm, it in their business, mm. get the buy-in with their staff, and really help them to understand the value of not letting any of those things slip through the cracks. If you have a standardized process that everyone follows, you get data into the day-to-day of your operations you get visibility, so if I wanna be on a beach for a month and make sure that my operations are still running, I can log in and I can see what's happening in my office. But it also just gives that checks and balances to make sure that fees are being charged, people are, are doing what they're supposed to be doing to make sure that that experience is consistent, and you're covering your liability in a different way because you can then say, I have documentation that shows that I treated every single one of my residents and my owners exactly the same. Fair housing, what are you gonna do with that? Because I can show the consistency and consistency is what matters.
0: I like the fact that you said helping folks map out their processes and then digitize them. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: My view is that the process is fundamentally separate from the tool that is used to execute the process i.e. the thinking about the abstraction, the mental model of like, it's this, and then it's that, it's then it's that. That should be clear in abstract. Mm And the reality is there's multiple tools you can put that in. When you conflate the two, you can have your process be driven by the limitations of the tool as opposed to thinking about just objectively, regardless of what software we're using, what does the process look like? Let's start on that first process construction. What's the process that you go through to map out processes per se, a little meta here.
1: So the very first thing is identifying your process universe and really stepping through and saying, okay, where are we struggling the most? Where do we have the biggest need? Where are our pain points as an office? And for some people, that is the lease renewal process. And that's a a big one for a lot of offices because they're just not getting done. Uh, For others, it's collections. They're losing tons of money because they don't have a a solid process for collections. For others, it's, it's that owner onboarding process. So it's really unique and different for every office. You'll have some property management consultants that'll say, well, there is a way to do property management and there is a box and and I will sell you and I will teach you the ways to do property management the right way. I approach things from a very different perspective in that there are a lot of really great ways to do it. Every business is at a different point in their maturity, in their tools, in their uh, really their profitability and their ability to finance the the tools, the people, all of these different pieces. And so the first step to that is really identifying the universe that they need for their operation and then prioritizing which process needs to come first. Which one's going to be the biggest help to increase the quality of life for my staff? What's going to be the biggest help to increase my profitability or to make sure that we're we're setting things up properly from the beginning. Maybe that's your onboarding. Um, so really establishing what the universe looks like and then prioritizing that universe.
0: And who should be involved in that conversation?
1: All of your decision makers. Um, I pull in. So if you have a, just a, an owner and he's got one assistant, then the owner is making the ultimate decisions um, with the help of their, their one employee. I really feel like this is a collaborative event most of the times because if you're not doing all of the tasks in the day to day, you may not have you might have blinders. You might have spots that you're not aware of that are really bleeding that your staff will have more visibility into. So if you're a larger organization, start with a team meeting. Start fleshing out just what are our issues? Uh, big proponent for issues lists and going through and establishing and having everyone have a voice To be able to have their voice heard in what the issues are that they're encountering. Because it's a lot of times eye-opening to figure out. I have had so many business owners that are like, I didn't know that was a problem. I thought that part was fine. Mm -hmm. I thought we were great over there. And so including the whole team and letting them be part of that discussion not only helps you figure out where that need is and establish that universe, but it also helps with the buy-in. Mm. of adopting a new program that is really going to be up to them to run.
0: Mm -hmm. 100%. And what I find commonly is not seen or appreciated is that staff members can absolutely sabotage the adoption, and particularly for owners that are really hands-off and they're really distant. I've been in a couple of calls where I remember the owner effectively saying, I can't audit this situation, I'm too far from day-to-day ops. What I know is so-and-so, my staff member, says it's not working. You know, we go in there, we see what's going on, and you can tell that they really didn't even try. But if you're far from it, it's hard to audit what's really going on. When you think about rollout and adoption, where things break down and what set of circumstances allow adoptions to work really well, what, what's the, the hit list that you've seen?
1: Buy-in is number one. Uh, If you don't have your team behind you and they don't understand the why of why you're implementing a new program or a new tool or a new process or a new policy, uh, it's going to fail before it even starts. That's
0: how how often do you deal with folks that are just skeptical around buy in Uh, daily? (laughs) (laughs) So walk me, walk me through that, 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 that pitch. I mean, I've heard everything from I already know how to do my job. I don't need software. Thanks. Yes. Are you secretly trying to fire me? Is this an attempt to outsource my role? Why are you micromanaging me? The list goes on. Mm -hmm. What have you found is like the most um, compelling way to approach this conversation to communicate how they will get value? Not the business or the business owner, but they will benefit.
1: So I do these team meetings all the time and because I see tremendous value in just airing the concerns in the beginning. Get it all out there. The best way to start it out is just to be completely open, and sometimes that means that the owner of the business isn't in the room when you're having those conversations. I'll I'll, I'll normally do a team meeting where everybody we're presenting the idea, we're talking through it, we're saying, "Anyone have any questions?" There's good, bad, ugly to everything, and I want to hear the ugly first. Tell me all the things you're worried about and sometimes you'll get engagement and you'll get those personality types that are like let me tell you why this is stupid. But most of the time it just prompts and starts the idea and then I'll pull people into one-on-ones to get their real feedback. And it's about building rapport and comfort with people enough to where they can openly and transparently just have a dialogue with you. And that doesn't happen immediately. I have I have found that the way that I approach things, I guess, with humor and with, um, I don't know, just honesty, removes a lot of barriers. Mm. And so I've had very open, transparent conversations. I had somebody say I was going to quit last week. I was going to quit last week, and this I'm not sure if this is a good thing for us or if this is a bad thing for us. So help me figure it out because I need to know if I'm putting it in my notice today. Mm business owner thought everything was great. And so it's, I think a lot of times it is really helpful to have an outside person be part of that integration process because not every employee has been in a culture that they've felt that safety in sharing their ideas openly. And so having a partner come in a third party that people are like, well, I can just talk to you. I can, I can just tell you things and it's going to stay in this room. Well, yeah, generally the feedback is going to go back to the owner, but it's not going to have your name attached to it. People are much more open to share. And the more of those concerns and issues and hurdles you can identify early, the more you can mitigate them. You can talk through it. You can bring in examples or tools or build out portions of a process or give a demo of a new tool, whether it's a, a new property management software or a new CRM. There's a lot of different tools in the industry that we do implementations on. And the more that you can demystify it, the more that you're going to be able to overcome the hurdles. But if you don't know what they are in the first place, you're, you're gonna be kind of stuck.
0: What does it look like to incorporate feedback 12 months after it was built? When you added another 100 units and it kind of broke as growth tends to do. What does it look like to have, to have an ongoing iterative feedback loop? I find that folks are somewhat enamored with the idea of, of getting it done and like mm-hmm. I built it and it's done and it's like this sense of finality that kind of doesn't actually exist as time goes on and entropy happens.
1: A lot of that is expectations from the beginning. If you're going into something and you're like, we're going to build it and then it's going to be good forever, wrong expectation because technology inherently is always changing. This industry is always changing. You are never going to implement something, whether it's digitally or on paper, that will never get to be touched again. That's just not the reality of property management. Uh, When I started in this industry, we were on triplicate forms. So the world has changed (laughs) and it will continue to change. That's one of the things we love about it. So I think having those conversations early and setting the the expectations with your team is vital to the longevity of that program as well. So you can say, we're gonna set this up, we're gonna get it how we want it, but we're gonna continue. This is a living, breathing document. This is a living, breathing process. This is a living, breathing email campaign. Whatever it may be, you're setting that expectation that this isn't a forever set it and forget it kind of product. This is a a product that will continue to grow with us. And there might be hurdles and we're, we're gonna overcome them when they come, so let's just keep that communication. Uh, I like having an ongoing issues list for technology. So if you have an ongoing team spreadsheet that is for your issues list, I have a separate sheet that is whatever the tool is that we're working in. So if it's, you know, a property management software that we just onboarded into or a CRM we just onboarded into, we'll have a separate tab for issues so people can say, hey, on the page for this, this is the issue that I came across. And so in our team meetings, I, I like... EOS. I do EOS implementations. And so I I like level 10 meetings. Um, But in those weekly meetings, we can say, okay, let's review the issues list. Let's look at what the issues are, what our hurdles are, what are our roadblocks and how do we remove some of those so that you can be more successful next week. So it's just setting the expectation and then living the expectation, keeping the communication lines open and transparent and not creating penalty or hurdles when someone does report something.
0: I love that you keyed in on setting expectations up front. How does that apply to expectations around the overall capabilities of the technology? I find frequently people see high end, highly automated setups, get, expi- get excited, inspired, and think, "I want that," not necessarily considering the full weight of the context, etc. When you walk into an office and you talk to an owner that's really excited about automation specifically. What what does navigating that conversation look like to get to an end state where there's actual real value?
1: I think first you have to knock down the expectation because what they've seen is not normally the reality. Everyone's met with salespeople. Salespeople are great at selling tools. That is their job. That is their fundamental purpose in the organization that they work for, and they're awesome at it. But sometimes what is construed as, not construed, what is stated as the product, we're working on the product doing this, which it's, and eventually it will do it. The owner hears, wow, the product does this already. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so there's a lot of things that are lost in translation in that excited period. Um, I have found, especially with technology, you hear all the highlights, you hear all the great things, you hear all of the amazing pieces the salesperson isn't going to say, oh, but we don't go deep enough into this part where you're really going to find value. Maybe eventually we'll get there like they're not Mm -hmm. having that conversation. So I think having, again, I go back to having an opportunity to say, hey, I would like to speak to several of your clients that you are already working with. So talking to the technology company and saying, hey, I'd like to speak with a couple of your clients that you had great success with and I'd like to speak to a couple of your clients that have not been happy, because I want a more full picture of what we're looking at. Is this really as great as advertised, or are there limitations that I still might sign up, but I need to know what they are? I really wish that salespeople would just be more honest from the get-go and it would curb your need for that step, but that's not their job. Their job is to sell. too often we don't follow through and get a big picture by talking to real life examples and, and use cases. Hmm. Or we only talk to the the top performer in that technology or the person that is most happy about it. Um, we're forgetting to to do our due diligence and talk to those who maybe didn't have a positive experience.
0: Can you give me an example of compelling, practical, useful automation, as well as an example of El Dorado that people have chased after and you frequently see just it's uh, more complexity than is actually worthwhile?
1: Um, yes. I recently retooled a workflow that was overly complicated, which meant that there were steps that were hidden and contingent upon Zapier fields populating before the next step would show, but Zapier has a delay, and so you were waiting on something to populate that wasn't going to populate for 15 minutes before you could move on to the next step. And it was overly complex. So I think some of those um, niceties that are bells and whistles in some of these softwares that exist are over the top. They're not useful. And so practical example, I I have this, workflow so the 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 workflow had too many conditional logic steps that were too deep and too complicated to where you really had to complete more of the workflow than was necessary or there was a lot of double entry to where you were entering all the information into custom fields in the workflow but then you also had to enter all that same information into custom fields because zapier integration didn't work right there's too much double entry um so I think places where automation really shines is things like templated documents that you can have your your text fields populate into your templated document send that templated document out for signature you can then have that signed document come back into a a google folder or an outlook folder without you having to to do anything with it um super valuable automations that are just the busy work, the little things that make your life easier because you don't have to do them anymore. Creation of folders, um, DocuSign signatures being sent out as part of your process. Those kind of automations are truly valuable. Whereas some of the other automations like zapping a bunch of information from your workflow into a Excel spreadsheet that no one's ever gonna look at because you could. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between purpose-driven and I did it because I could. (laughs) So when I'm looking at a process, I wanna make it as simple and as clean as possible. So if I don't need automation, I'm not gonna use automation. If there are other ways to achieve it without automation, I'm not gonna use automation because the reality is Zapier is an extra expense Uh, depending on how many zaps you're using, and it is not always working right. Sometimes it breaks. Sometimes zaps don't go through or they get stalled out because uh, a word wasn't exactly the same in point A and point B. So there's a lot of um, opportunity for failure the more automation you use in a process, and so I like to simplify wherever possible.
0: What would you say to somebody that is expressing fatigue from using multiple pieces of software? The extreme version of that was, shouldn't I be able to do all of this in my PMS? <laughs> that comes up from time to time. I hear that. All pa- of the time. Particularly as a PMS it has an ever-expanding suite of offerings, et cetera. What justifies multiple logins, learning new things, data bridges, et cetera?
1: The reality is that there is no property management software that exists today that goes deep enough into the many components that a property manager needs to be able to run a sophisticated, technology-savvy property management company. You have lots of examples of software uh, that are trying to do some of these uh, inspections, which I call evaluations for lots of reasons, but uh, your evaluations that are, that are trying to be captured in some of the software doesn't go deep enough. It doesn't do the communication or allow residents to do those evaluations. It doesn't allow for you to create estimates off of those evaluations. There's, there's pieces that are missing in the PMS software. Reality is property management software is accounting software that also has other features. In a lot of cases, that's its core. That's what it's good at. That's what it's supposed to do. And the reason why we have these other tools in the industry and you see people having 16 tabs open on their desktop in order to run their business is because they need the depth of a true CRM. They need the depth of a true task management system or a template management system. They need the depth of these uh, these different pieces of the business in order to run things efficiently and run things as well as possible and to be able to present a, a product to the marketplace that is competitive, that is compelling, that is really demonstrating a high quality and value. Do I wish that one software would do everything? Yes. So badly. I've wanted it for so long. Keep waiting. But the reality is um, I, I kind of had an opportunity to start exploring a software side of of career path and decided that I don't love coding, um, but I did get into UX and UI a little bit and started learning a lot of the principles of of design in technology, um, and learned enough of the fundamentals of APIs and how they work and everything else to to have a respect for it. Uh, the reality is that a property management software does not typically have the funding and the ability to maintain the depth that would be required in each of those verticals to still be a profitable company as a singular company. You can only raise your fees so high before property managers are going to choose somebody else and they're going to decide that those pieces that you're adding on aren't valuable. You've seen companies like Appfolio that have like a leasing add-on and a maintenance add-on that you can add to the, the base. And so I think they're There's companies that are trying to be competitive in those places, but you can't compete with someone that that's their singular focus. If you have a a tool that is a CRM, it is a CRM, and so they can go deep into being a CRM. Same thing with all these other verticals, your evaluation software. They can go deep into being the best they can be in that piece, so they're not having to, to bifurcate their resources in order to make it happen.
0: You're really making the case for partnerships and integrations. I am. If there's one piece, if one piece of software is not going to do everything, then what you need is best-in-class software is to talk as functionally and well as they can. We've obviously some seen some movement in the industry. If you could change, you know, typically my question is, if you could change one thing about property management, what would it, what, what would it be? I want to ask you if you could change one thing about the tech landscape in property management, what would it be?
1: I would love, 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 love to see more partnerships going with true integrations and not just APIs. APIs aren't always great, and they're very limited at times in the endpoints that are made available or the capabilities, and it's not apples to apples all the time in what you can do with your different partners. And you're still having to have a login and you know a, a different platform that you're, you're going to at times. Whereas with an integration, you can have a button featured in that property management software that does the function that you need it to in another software, have a pop-up window that stays natively in that software. Um, I would love to see more collaboration and integration. I'm starting to see some of those API partnerships go proprietary, which is...
0: Can you explain what that means?
1: Yeah. So... It basically means that a a company, a property management software will say, yes, we'll allow you to build an API to our platform, and we won't allow anyone else in your category that same access. And so they're creating a relationship that is then... Kingmaker. Yep. And so I don't love that because, again, I don't think that there's one right way to do everything. I think that there's a lot of right ways to do property management, and it's going to be different... Regionally, and it's going to be different um, personality type, and it's going to be different client base. Uh, there's a lot of differences. I have kind of a unique view in that I have I have worked in property management and touched property management in all 50 states and in six different countries, and so I know that there is no one way or one partnership that's going to work for everyone. So when I start seeing some partners making those decisions, it's like, ah, oh, don't do that. <laughs> Please don't do that. Make it accessible. Every, every vendor is going to appeal to a different person, just like a consultant is going to appeal to a different person or a property manager is going to appeal to a different person. There is no just one right person, one right personality type for everyone. So leave those partnerships open. Don't be afraid to compete.
0: The good news is that in the end, the market wins. And as this deconstruction of what is traditionally made up PM continues to happen. Deconstruction, meaning you have much more verticalization within the vertical you have. It's turning into a stack of Legos that people Mm. are able to construct on their own. I firmly believe that the progress that we've seen thus far wasn't a function of charity, altruism, benevolence. It was market demand. And the market is going to keep demanding this. More capital is going to come into this space to push us forward towards this open, cooperative, free market paradigm. So I think it's, I think it's <laughs> yeah, I think it's um coming, but you just can't know when exactly the timeline is going to be. Kelly, if folks want to find out more about the consulting work that you do, what's the best place for them to go?
1: They can go to my website, ksegretto.com. I
0: appreciate you coming on. It's great riffing with you.
1: You as well. Thank you. Until
0: next time. <laughs> That's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. You can check out other episodes along the way. If you're watching this on YouTube, appreciate a subscribe. Any comments, I'm always here to engage. If you're listening on an audio platform, would really appreciate a review. It's a great way to help other people find out about the show.